LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. The question this week, it kind of comes out of a, a sermon that you preached recently at the summit uh, that was mostly centered on abortion, where you said that abortion was the greatest moral crisis of our time. I just wanted to hear you kind of talk more about that. How did you come to that conclusion? Why did you feel like you needed to say that? In the yeah, sermon? well, that's certainly not to diminish any of the other moral crises of our time. You know, and it's like our counseling pastor says, suffering is not a competitive sport. So um, when you think about some of the problems of whether it's racial injustice or whether it's um, corruption in, in other spheres, I mean, these are all problems. But when you think about um, the murder or the taking, the willful taking of a life of someone that's innocent, someone that is voiceless, what greater tragedy is there than ending human life? I mean, that is the capital of all of all of all injustices. And it happens to people who, as I hopefully will explain here in a couple of minutes, are fully human. And if they're fully human, then it is in the eyes of God a, a horrendous travesty of justice. So um, again, not to diminish any of the other things, but I really don't see how we wouldn't conclude that the 42 million babies that have been aborted um, last year hmm. in the womb would not, that's seven Holocaust hmm. that are happening every single year. Yeah. The other thing I don't want to do in saying that it's the greatest moral crisis is I don't want to um, legitimize people who just wield this as a political club. You know, it's it's like this is their ace card to to insist that everybody vote the same way they do and, and everything is like they're, they, they just pull this out and it's like the only justice issue they care about. Um, as I'll say over here over the next couple podcasts, if you are not passionate about justice issues from the womb to the tomb, then I would say you're not really pro-life. Um, pro-life, yes, it certainly begins in the womb. And like I'll say, um, if it doesn't begin with the womb, then it's not pro-life. But if it really truly is pro-life, it will go beyond that. That's good. So, J.D., obviously there's a lot of people um, in our culture that are that are on the opposite side of this. And, and I know you've heard a lot of, like, these are arguments for, um, for pro-choice. So the question, specific question we have today is how do you answer kind of some of the most common pro-choice arguments. And the way I think it could be helpful to do it is just, I'm going to throw some of them out there okay. and then you kind of respond to them. So right. um, the first one is, is a lot of people would say the baby is part of a woman's body and we need to respect her right to privacy and sovereignty over her own body. Yeah. Well, well pro-choice, Matt. Um, that's what <laughs> I'll call you. Um, yeah. Listen, I agree that the right to privacy over our bodies is precious, but I mean, here's the simple truth. That baby is not part of her body. The baby is intimately attached to that woman's body for a period of time, but it's not part of her body. Now, there's a guy named Thaddeus Williams, who's a, like a Christian philosopher, and I, I glean a lot of uh, my insight on these things from him. He says, and let me quote, from the moment of conception, that baby has its own DNA, its own unique genetic code, a unique heart, a unique circulatory system, unique brain, and more. If you're saying that, that, that this baby is a part of her body, does that mean that she, the woman, has two brains, two hearts, and four arms and four legs? Well, no, of course not. It's a separate person, even though it's intimately attached for a while to her body. Um, scripture certainly presents the unborn child as, as, as its own person. The, the psalmist in Psalm 139 says that in the womb, God knew me by name. That's communicating personhood. Um, there I was fearfully and wonderfully 
perfectly made. I was knit together according to his plan, even before my mother even knew that she that I was pregnant with her. So I belong to God before I belong to, to her body. Scripture tells us that John the Baptist um, leapt in Elizabeth's womb. He was filled with the Spirit in the presence of Jesus, um, even when it implies Elizabeth was not. So it's showing that 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 that's a, that it's a unique person. Okay, so that I mean that makes sense, but I think some someone might say you know it it might not be part of my body, but it's still in my body. Yeah, well, that's true. But we all know that our rights over our bodies, they're not absolute as far as the law is concerned. Again, Thaddeus Williams points out prostitution is illegal in most states. I don't, we don't know of anywhere in the U.S. that you can legally pour drugs into your body just because it's your body. Your rights to your body stop precisely at that place where they begin to affect somebody else's. And that is exactly what's happening to the pre-born. Uh, the pre-born is they're being affected by your choices about your body. And that that brings a, a whole new set of, of, of rights. Okay, so here, here's another one that, that I know you've heard a lot. They might say, you know, Pastor J.D., saying life begins at conception is just a matter of opinion, and you shouldn't be forcing your opinion on other people. Yeah, well, I, I get that, but we're not in the realm of opinion here. We're in the realm of biology. And for, for the Christian, you're in the realm of Scripture. But let me just hang, hang with biology first, since we're um, since there may be people who don't accept the authority of the Bible when we, we talk about this. Um, hear me out. I, I, I'll, let me jump into the weeds here, but I'll do it briefly, and uh, just give me a couple minutes here. If you say that life begins at birth, well, the only difference between a baby five seconds prior to birth and five seconds after birth is location. And location seems like a really arbitrary foundation to establish personhood. Scientifically, you have to ask, what's the difference in the nature of that baby five seconds before birth and five seconds after? If somebody says, well, life begins with brain function, when the baby can experience pain, when they are in what, what scientists call a sentient state, or it means self-conscious state. Well, first, you should note that that contradicts the position that abortion is a fundamental woman's right through all nine months of pregnancy just because it's in her womb. But second, um, the, the question is, when I am not in a sentient state, does that mean I've lost my right to life? I mean, just to pose in a, you know, example, maybe a little ridiculous, but if I go into a temporary coma that you know I'm going to wake up from in nine months— my strong preference would be that you not kill me. Yeah. Now, just because I'm not sentient doesn't mean I, I don't have personhood. You say, well, life begins at viability when the baby can live on its own. Well, that also seems like a strange criteria for when personhood begins because you think about it. Isn't viability, the ability for a baby to live on its own, isn't that contingent on the advancement of technology? Every year in our country, newer and better technology pushes the length of viability back. I mean, I have uh, triplets that were born to my sister, and they were born incredibly early because of some amazing technology that wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago. Um, well, if viability determines personhood, then that means logically that whether or not someone is a person is dependent on how advanced our technology is. And again, that seems arbitrary. It means that those born in more technologically advanced societies somehow possess greater personhood and more rights than those who are born in poor countries, and that just that doesn't make sense. Plus, I would argue that the more helpless a person is, the more vulnerable, the, the, the less viable, you might say, the more that we as a society are obligated to protect them. You know, some of the great moral theorists, um, not just of our day, but of history, have, have said that you judge a society based on how you treat your weakest and most vulnerable members, the, the, the last, the least, and the littlest. And you're unclear on this, and you're not convinced that personhood begins at conception. I would just say very humbly, wouldn't you want to err on the side of life? You know, if you're out hunting in the woods and 
you know, you got a buddy with you and, and, and you don't know where he is and you hear something rustling in the bushes over there and you're not sure if it's a deer or if it's your, your friend. Well, nobody's going to say, go ahead and shoot because you want to make sure it's not your friend because, because you don't want to be guilty of murder. If there's any cha- if there's any question about when life begins, we should err on the side of life. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that's really good. I mean, a lot of times it does feel like there's like quibbling over these moments, and it's like, why would we not? Why would we not so easily err in that direction? Like, it seems so counterintuitive to try to figure out the exact moment when right. it's one way or the other. So and scientifically, I, again, people are like, well, you know, you're science deniers, and they they, they throw that yeah. whether it's climate change or, but you know, this is a very clear scientific question. Yeah. That that baby is an organism with its own DNA and its own its own personhood, so it has to be given the rights of personhood. Yep. Okay. So next one um, would be like the idea that if abortion was made illegal, people would go back to really unsafe ways of getting abortions. They'd get abortions anyway. They would just be unsafe. They go back to kind of the the back alley abortion would come back into vogue. What what would you say to that? Yeah, this is actually, Matt, the one that I think when you pull back the layers, a lot of people, it keeps them from being pro-life. They're like, well, people are going to do it anyway. So if it's made illegal, it'll just, and lots of women will die as a result of this, and it'll be a a tragedy. Just to, to be clear, stories of the amount of people who amount of women who died through those kinds of abortions pre-Roe v. Wade are way exaggerated. There was a total of 39 women who died the year before Roe v. Wade through an illegal abortion. And that's tragic. I mean, it is. And I don't diminish that at all. But you compare that to the 900,000 babies who died in state-sanctioned abortions this year. Again, quoting Thaddeus Williams, the coat hanger argument misses the point that the pre-born are people. And pointing out some negative side effects of a restriction doesn't justify the sanctioning of murder. That's good. J.D., the, the next question that, I mean, I think is becoming more and more and more an issue on this, but what, what about the case of genetic disabilities? People might say that they don't want to bring babies into the world. We shouldn't bring babies into the world with genetic disabilities whose lives will be reduced to hardship and unhappiness. Yeah, I understand that question, too. First thing I would, I would tell you to note is that people with disabilities are vehemently opposed to that argument. In fact, there's not a single organization of disabled people in the world that I know of that is in favor of elective abortions of those who have disabilities. Second, you know, you're making a you're making a false correlation between genetic deformities and unhappiness. Uh, Thaddeus Williams uh, cites a study that claimed that no study found that handicapped persons were more likely than non-handicapped persons to want to die or commit suicide. In fact, of the 200 consecutive suicides in Baltimore, not one had been committed by somebody with a congenital deformity. Right. None. If you're trying to say that we should be able to abort those that we know in advance are the most likely to be unhappy. Well, it's not those with genetic deformities you should start with. They're on the happy end of the scale. The point is, who are we to determine when another life is not worth living? It misses the point. This whole line of thinking misses the point. The preborn baby is a person. And just because you think somebody might experience hardship in their lives, does that justify you taking upon yourself the decision to kill them in advance. Yeah, yeah. I, I just read an article recently in the Atlantic. They were talking about how uh, some Scandinavian country is almost completely. They have no people with Down syndrome being born. Right. And they were talking. And it's not a Christian article. Not a Christian author. The author could, it was meeting families. People would like have Down syndrome kids. They couldn't help but engage with how sad and they weren't quite willing to say wrong. Right. But, but it was just the tenor of this, this article was like, how is this the result that we're going for? Yeah, you who, know? Are, who are you and I to choose? Like, yeah. what, what, I mean, what's it next, you know? Yeah. What, how about the non-athletic? 
yeah. people with IQs below 100. It's just better if we had a smart society. I mean, that, that kind of genetic engineering where you're taking life to create what you think is a more perfect society. Yeah. I hate the Nazism comparison, but you see the logical underpinnings that extend from one question to the next. Yeah. So um, the next thing would be a kind of maybe a practical thing. People would say um, abortion sometimes helps poor women escape from crushing financial burdens. Banning abortion would just cause overpopulation and massive poverty. Yeah, that kind of statement confuses finding a solution with eliminating a problem. I mean, if, if the dog next door keeps pooping in your yard and so you take your crossbow out and shoot the dog, you have eliminated the problem, but you didn't find a solution. Yep. And again, I, I I don't want to say anything in poor taste, but I mean, homelessness is a problem. We see people on street corners. That's, that's a problem. But if we were to round up the homeless and you know execute all of them, you've eliminated the problem. But that's not finding a solution. Yeah. We should find a solution for poverty, but 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 let's not just eliminate it through an injustice that is worse than the problem itself. Again, the point is the preborn are people, and you don't justify killing a person because it eliminates a problem. Because, again, think about it. Couldn't you use that same line of reasoning to justify eliminating other financially burdensome groups? Where where would that lo- stop logically? Yeah. J.D., so the last one is one that I know you get asked a lot. And I would say, at least in my experience, is one that I think Christians sometimes struggle with maybe more than some of the other ones. But what about cases of rape or incest? Well, I mean, that's it's hard to talk about because I cannot imagine the pain that's involved in something like that. It's unspeakable. But again, just to keep this in perspective, those tragic and heartbreaking cases make up less than 1% of all abortions. When somebody says that to me, I always kind of turn it around and ask them, are you agreeing then that the other 99% of abortions are, are immoral? Yeah. The bigger point, though, the logical point is this. Does the fact that that baby got there by rape or incest change the fact that they're still a person? Does the circumstances of one's birth take away from their personhood? I mean, again, to try to be you know logical, if a grown adult suddenly finds out that they were conceived by rape, would that somehow reduce their value or their right to life as a person? We got to keep our eye on the central question: Is the preborn baby a person? And if they are, how they became a person is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. That little human life, that little person, regardless of how they got there, when they're no bigger than a a speck, the size of a the period at the end of a sentence on a a page you're reading, that that preborn baby is made in the image of God. It's like the late Joe Scheidler who died this year used to say that speck has more value than all the planets and all the stars and all the vast cosmos because it has a soul that's made in the image of God that Jesus died for and that a soul that has an eternal future. The logic behind the pro-life position is, is very simple. It's just two premises. Is the pre-born baby a person? And I think we have to answer yes, it is. And if it is, is there anything that justifies the willful termination of the life of an innocent person? And the answer to that is no. Those two premises, if you believe them and they're very logical, one flows right out of the other, then you have to adopt a pro-life position if you're going to be a consistent moral ethicist. That's really good. Um, Well, J.D., thanks for that. And we're actually going to next time on the podcast, we're going to do another question. It's a little bit more geared toward what does it mean to be pro-life? And so we're excited to to hear what you have to say on that. But we would also just encourage you, if you're listening to this podcast, you check out the Unseen Leadership Podcast. Um, This is a podcast for young leaders that explores the unseen stories that have made them the leaders they are today. They've recently interviewed um, people like Matt Chandler and Rod Edmondson. So look up Unseen Leadership on your favorite podcasting app and subscribe today. If you want more from Pastor JD, you can follow him on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
And if you're listening to these podcasts and you think, man, I wish there was more of this, make sure you're tuning into the Summit Life podcast with Pastor JD. The Summit Life broadcast is a daily 25-minute program um, where Pastor JD shares biblical truths in a longer format that inspires people to have daily encounters with Jesus and his transformative grace. It airs on hundreds of radio stations around the country, but it's also a podcast. So if you're listening to this as a podcast, you can listen to that one also, or you can find it at jdgreer.com, and we will see you next time on Ask Me Anything.